you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 31 of 1 Corinthians 11 for our time together today. See, having finished a 16-month study of Christ above all last week, we're going to take today to more closely examine one of the essential ways that we as believers regularly respond to the glory of Uh, for the glory of God, to the gospel. See, this ought to be our heartbeat as a church. Our heartbeat as a church ought to be the gospel. The truths we were just singing about this morning. It ought to be the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what brings us together to worship today. It is the good news that according to the pages of Scripture alone, sinners like you and I can be saved. How? By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That is what brings us together. And by the way, this is also what sets us apart as a church. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in the midst of a world that is continually overwhelmed by grim news, we have good news. Who Jesus is. What He has done. What He is doing. And what He will do someday soon. This is the good news that we are called on to know, and that we are called on to rightly respond to for the glory of God. And if you recall, God lays out a general blueprint for us as a church regarding how to do that in Acts chapter 2. Just so you remember, in Acts chapter 2, Peter had just finished preaching his first great gospel message, and in that moment, the church was born. And there, in its infancy, we see the essential elements of a local church. This is what I want built into your brains. I want it to be the DNA of our church. Acts 2.41-42 says, So those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. There we see the essential ways we are to respond to the Gospel for the glory of God. We are to first believe right those who received his word how by faith that's the first way to respond to the gospel for the glory of god is to believe the saving message of jesus christ the second way to respond rightly for the to the gospel for the glory of god is to be is to be baptized right those who received his word did what they went public with their faith they were baptized they expressed their faith in christ through the ordinance of baptism. The third way to respond rightly to the gospel for the glory of God is to be added to the local church. They were added that day to their number about 3,000 souls. And then finally, the fourth way to respond rightly to the gospel for the glory of God is to be devoted. When you come and join the people of Christ in a local area to devote yourself You come to devote yourself to certain things. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And notice in that last point, we as believers respond rightly to the gospel for the glory of God by devoting ourselves as members together to three things. The foundations of Grace Chapel, the foundations of every church, every healthy church. They devoted themselves to the word of grace, right? The apostles' teaching, Scripture. They devoted themselves second to the throne of grace, to the prayers. And finally, they devoted themselves to the fellowship of grace, the fellowship, godly Christian fellowship. And do you see there in verse 42 that one of the ways that we are to express our devotion to the fellowship of grace as members one of another is as it's worded by the breaking of bread. That is the observation of communion 
otherwise known as the Lord's Supper. Now, observing this ordinance of communion is something that we do at the beginning of every month as a church. And so, it might be very familiar to many of you here today, but for others who are new to Christianity in the church, what we are going to do after the service might look kind of strange or bizarre. Uh, Think about it. We all sit quietly, listening to something being read, and then someone prays, and then we all eat a little cracker. And not enough juice to wash it down, right? (laughs) That is why I say, for those of us who are unfamiliar with this, it can be kind of disorienting. And even for us who are familiar with observing communion and the Lord's Supper, we can do it without really thinking about what we're doing or understanding the real significance to it. Well, that's not good because Scripture says we ought to worship in spirit and in truth, and we ought to love the Lord our God with all of our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And considering that communion is one of only two ordinances that Christ commanded us as a church to observe before he ascended into heaven, baptism and the Lord's Supper, then it is extremely important to make sure that we understand what communion truly is, since it is a major part of what Christ wants us to do as a church, to stay on task for him. And so I wanted to take this morning to explain in depth, really for the first time, as your pastor, what communion is and what it symbolizes. So that when we observe it at the conclusion of this service, we would observe it with minds and hearts that are filled with the wonder of what it truly represents. So to do that, we're going to be jumping into what is probably the most definitive and comprehensive section of Scripture that covers communion, 1 Corinthians really 10 through 11, and we're going to be specifically examining the climax of this section, which is 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 31. And from these verses, we're going to discover communion's divine author. This is the beginning of verse 23. Communion's historical context, that's in verse, the end of verse 23, and then finally, communion's spiritual character, and we'll spend the majority of our time there in verses 24 through 26. So, communion's divine author, historic context, and spiritual character. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words for us today. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Till he comes. This is the word of God who acts when his law is broken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the rich feast that is set before us today. And Father, I thank you for how it shows us the glory of Christ's work on the cross. Father, I pray 
that the magnitude and the magnificence of what He accomplished on the cross would be driven into our hearts and our minds this morning so that we would worship Him as we ought to. So that every time we come to this moment of celebrating communion, we would do it in spirit and in truth with a fullness of understanding and full conviction and hearts full of appreciation and thanksgiving for what He has done. And so Father, teach us afresh what it means to observe communion today. What it is a picture of. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins this climactic section on the Lord's Supper by reminding us first of its divine author. At the very beginning of verse 23, Paul writes these words, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is uh, pretty significant in terms of what Paul is arguing so far in the book of Corinthians. Here Paul reminds the Corinthians of the divine author who created the ordinance of communion. You see, the Corinthian church had started to view and observe communions lightly and thoughtlessly. People who shouldn't have been taking communion were, and people that should have been taking communion weren't. Rather than being a celebration of the common union and love that exists between believers in Jesus Christ, the meal of the Lord's Supper was becoming a spotlight on all of the disunity and disruptions and selfishness and divisions that existed among the body there in Corinth. And the proud Corinthian believers were using the Lord's Supper to perpetuate and deepen those divisions. And so here in verse 23... Paul wades into that whole issue by reminding those Corinthians that communion was something that had a divine author, and therefore it is to be something that is observed carefully and under the fear of the Lord. Paul reminds them, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. In other words, Paul was telling them, I didn't give my own perspective on what communion should be all about when I came in my first letter. No, you need to know that I gave you Christ's perspective. Now you might be thinking, but wait, isn't everything that Paul (laughs) wrote in scriptures God's perspective anyway? Paul himself wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, and even 2 Peter 1.21 says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So all of scripture is God's perspective, it's God's words. Yes, but that's not what Paul's point is here. Paul's not saying, for I am currently receiving from God this perspective on communion as I'm writing this. He's not saying that. No, he's saying, I have received in the past from the Lord this perspective on communion that I've already delivered to you, and I have to remind you of it once again. He already received from the Lord this perspective on communion. When did that happen? Well, in Galatians 1, Paul tells us that after his conversion, the Spirit led him away into the Arabian desert for about three years. And there in the desert, Paul received the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Not from men, as Galatians 1.12 says, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, for three years, Paul received teaching direct from the Lord. Why is that significant? 
Well, just as the original 12 were taught personally by Christ for a period of about three years, so also Paul himself is taught by Christ personally for a period of about three years as well. Paul is not some second-hand apostle who's given second-hand teaching. Paul had teaching direct from Christ, and part of that teaching concerned communion. Therefore, it is important to listen to what Paul records here on Christ's teaching concerning communion, because after all, the Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper. He created it, we should listen to Him. And by the way, this is also what we have here in 1 Corinthians 11. This is the earliest record we have concerning communion. See, before any of the other Gospels were ever even written, this letter of 1 Corinthians with its instructions regarding communion was written probably about five years earlier than the earliest Gospel. So what we have here in verses 23 through 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the earliest and most essential aspects of communion that God desired to give believers at the very beginning of the church. So we have a lot to learn from this passage. So after Paul reminds us of communion's divine author, he then fills us in on its historic context in verse, at the end of verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. That's the historic context. You say, well, why does Paul mention this fact that it was on the night on which Christ was betrayed that he inaugurated the Lord's Supper? Why does Paul draw attention to that? Well, Paul does so because he wants to remind us that this was not an ordinary moment nor an ordinary night no the lord's supper was created the night when jesus was betrayed it was created the night before the lord was crucified and not only that but the lord's supper was created on the night of the passover see jesus commanded his followers to observe communion the very night that he and his disciples were eating the jewish passover feast what's the passover you say glad you asked the passover was a feast that the Jews observed once a year, it was, uh, a feast that celebrated all the great things that God had done for the people of Israel while they were in captivity in Egypt when the Lord brought them out of that captivity. If you remember in the book of Exodus, the Jews had been in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years and God delivered them as recorded in Exodus 7-12 through 12, by a series of mighty plagues and miracles, the last of which was the death of of every firstborn child from every unbelieving family, as recorded in Exodus chapter 12. There in that account, the only way that a family could escape this death under God's wrath was to kill a spotless lamb to take its blood and to apply it to the doorposts of their house. And then when the angel of the Lord came and saw the blood applied, he would pass over that house and spare them from God's wrath, hence the term Passover. And so though... Uh, through applying the pure bloods, pure blood of the lamb, the individuals inside that house would be delivered both from death and from bondage. The feast of the Passover was to commemorate that deliverance and to celebrate the God of deliverance. And by the way, this is why Christ, if you ever wanted to know why Christ died on Passover, why he was killed on Passover, because he was the fulfillment of the Passover feast. In the first Passover, God delivered his people from physical bondage and physical death, but in the second and final Passover, God offers deliverance from spiritual bondage and spiritual death. This time through the blood, not of a creature, but of the Creator, of Jesus Christ, who is, as as John 1.29 states, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. Christ is the ultimate 
deliverance. So that's the meaning, and that is the fulfillment of the feast that Christ and his disciples were celebrating that night before his death. They were celebrating the feast of deliverance, the feast of Passover. Well, Paul reminds us here an important and critical detail. Right before the main course of the meal, Jesus takes the unleavened bread, which everybody did during Passover, and then he proceeds to say something that no one ever says during Passover. And it is at this moment that a massive theological tectonic shift happens. Jesus steps away from any pattern ever observed for Passover, and he proceeds to create in that moment something brand new. And what we have described in the rest of this passage is no longer the Passover feast. This is something brand new. This is now the Lord's Supper. Jesus takes this Passover meal and he makes it his own meal. And what does Jesus say? Let me tell you, words cannot express the momentous shift that happens here in redemptive history. Look at verse 24. This is where Paul begins to outline for us communion, spiritual character in verses 24 through 26. And the first thing that Paul tells us about the spiritual character of communion is that it is first a memorial. A memorial. In verses 24 through 25, it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The first thing we discover here is that communion is a memorial first of Christ's death. Verse 24 says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, some people look at what Jesus says here about bread, and they get really confused And they, when he says, This is my body. I don't know why they get confused, because Jesus spoke symbolically all the time, just like he's doing there. Jesus also said in the Gospels, I am the vine. Nobody gasps and said, oh my goodness, has he been turned into a plant? They understood what he was talking about. John 15, 5, I am the vine. They knew that he was speaking symbolically, and it's clear that he was. The same is true here as well. Jesus is saying, this bread, this is a symbol of my body. I am giving it to you. And then he clarifies it even more by adding this, do this Does he say, because this is me? No, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Communion is not another sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No, communion is a remembrance of the once for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he died on our behalf. When he died on our behalf. So Christ takes this unleavened bread that once represented the exodus, And he says, nope, now this represents me, my body, and do this, this breaking of bread in remembrance of me. And by that truly remarkable statement, Jesus instantly transforms the Passover into the Lord's Supper. And he's telling us now, when you want to remember the God of deliverance, when you want to remember God's deliverance for you, don't remember the Exodus. Don't remember Egypt. Don't remember the Passover. Remember my death. That was just a shadow. The substance is here. I am the greatest expression of God's deliverance. Do this in remembrance of me. Me. Christ above all. 
Jesus takes this beautiful Passover feast of which he was now the fulfillment and he exalts it into his own supper. It's almost like he's Lord of the Passover, just like he's Lord of the Sabbath. So now when we come to celebrate God's deliverance as believers, we don't celebrate the Passover. We celebrate communion. We celebrate the cross. We celebrate Christ, whose body and life was given up notice for us. For us. See, we were sinners under the just wrath of God. Sin separates us from God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus Christ, as the pure and righteous One sent from the Father, died on the cross on our behalf, taking upon Himself our sin guilt so that we might receive from Him His perfect righteousness. He died for us so that we would be delivered, set free, not physically, but spiritually from our sins. So we celebrate Christ. A great transformation has taken place here. Momentous. And we see this transformation accentuated even more in the following verse, in verse 25, where Paul shows us that communion is not only a memorial of Christ's death, but it is also a memorial of what I would say our new covenant. Verse 25, Paul says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. See, communion is not, a rem- is not only a remembrance of Christ's death, it is also a remembrance of our new covenant that we have in Him. Christ takes that third cup of the Passover meal after supper and He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Did you catch what Jesus said? He said, this cup is the what? New covenant. New covenant in my blood. See, this supper was, uh, is not merely a transition between the Passover feast into the Lord's Supper. What happened there in the upper room, what was taking place was ultimately a transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You say, well, what's the Old Covenant? In short, it's the Mosaic Law. It's all those requirements of observing sacrifices and ceremonies and days and feasts. When that covenant began in Exodus 24, if you were to look up the passage, it began with Moses sprinkling the blood of animal sacrifices upon God's people. The sprinkling of blood inaugurated the Old Covenant. Christ here is saying this cup represents, it is the New Covenant in My blood. Christ is saying My blood is being spilt. Therefore, the Old Covenant is obsolete, as Hebrews 8.13 says, and the New Covenant has begun. The new promise is here. The new promise in Christ's blood, and that is this. Not the promises, if you sin, keep on offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice and keep on trying to improve yourself and do more good works and more good deeds. The promise of the new covenant is come to Christ and you shall find total forgiveness for all of your sins. That is the promise of the new covenant. As Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That was the new promise. Before, God's people had to offer sacrifice continually. But now in Hebrews 10.10, it says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
once for all. So that's why Jesus says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So no longer do we go back in remembrance to the blood of the Passover, which secured a temporary deliverance. We go back to the blood of the cross, which secures an eternal deliverance and an eternal forgiveness for those who trust in Christ. This is what we do every single time we take communion. We remember that new covenant and we restate that vow. We say, yes, I trust in Christ and His perfect sacrifice on my behalf. I want His perfect death to be counted as my death. I want His perfect life to be counted as my life. I want His eternal grace, His eternal salvation, His eternal forgiveness. So when we take communion, when we eat that bread and we drink that cup, we are saying, I've believed and I still believe in Christ alone for the salvation and forgiveness of my soul. We don't celebrate Passover. We don't celebrate feasts. We don't celebrate obsolete ceremonies. Why? Because new blood's been spilt. A new covenant's been inaugurated. And we are in that covenant. Covenant of total forgiveness beneath the blood of Christ. And today we dedicate ourselves to that covenant. We celebrate that sacrifice. We rejoice in that forgiveness. Today we share in Christ's death and in Christ's life. So communion is a very important remembrance of Christ's sacrifice and of Christ's covenant and our dedication and participation in it by faith. And not only is this blessed ordinance a memorial, but it is also, second, a proclamation. Look at what Paul says in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Some people wonder, you know, how often are we as churches to observe communion? Well, the answer is Scripture doesn't say explicitly, but let me do say that there are plenty of motivations to make the observance of communion regular and often. And this verse is one of those motivations because Paul says here that when we get together and when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. See, when those outside of Christ who might be here this morning see you as a believer share in this observation of communion. They see in that moment the message of the gospel. You're stating your acceptance of and your faith in Christ's sacrifice in picture form every time you eat this bread and drink this cup. You're stating by your actions, Christ died, His blood was spilt, and by faith in Him, His sacrifice has been counted to me as we eat that bread and drink that cup. You're stating by your actions, My faith, my dependence for salvation rests solely in Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. I trust in that and in that alone. So when we perform communion, we're sharing the gospel with each other and with everyone here. And that is an act that pleases God. We're making the truth tangible. That's a good thing. Because declaring the gospel and Jesus Christ and Him crucified is what we as a church ought to be all about. This morning, as we share in communion, we are pleasing God. We are proclaiming a message that gives power and grace and forgiveness to those who embrace it by faith. So communion is a memorial. It's also a proclamation. And finally, it is a prophecy. Paul says that we proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes. He comes. See, God intends communion 
to bring believers a certain joy and expectation of Christ's return. We ought to take communion and be thinking of heaven in that moment. Matthew records in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, that Jesus, after giving the bread and drinking the cup, He promised His disciples, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Unfortunately, I don't have enough time today to go through this like I'd like to, but communion is really a reminder of our engagement to Jesus Christ as believers. We as believers are currently on this earth. What's happening? We are being prepared daily by the Holy Spirit for our coming marriage union with our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And this act of communion is to be a rehearsal dinner. It is to remind us of our engagement to Jesus, of our devotion to Him, and of the day that is coming when we will finally, at last, be united with Him forever to always be with the Lord. Christ says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Why? Because when He drinks it again with us, and He will, it will be during the marriage supper of the Lamb with us as His bride. So every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we look forward to that time when Christ Himself will drink it with us as our eternal companion. And so really, in a way, the Lord's Supper is a lot like Passover. This is, as one person put it, Pilgrim food. Pilgrim food. Like the Passover, it is a meal that we are eating on the way to our final destination. What we observe today is to direct our attention by directing our senses to what Christ has done for us, where He has put us, and where He's taking us. It whets our appetite for greater communion with God. And so we as believers, together as an assembly, as a church, will celebrate our common union together with Christ faithfully and fervently until Christ's return. We will celebrate it as a memorial, as a proclamation, and as a prophecy. And so in preparation for that, as the men come forward this morning for communion, let's pray, and then I have the last part of my message. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what's in front of us. Father, I thank you for what we're about to do reminds us of. Reminds us of Christ. Stretched out on the cross. Bleeding beneath your wrath. Crying out, it is finished for us. Broken body, spilt blood, total forgiveness. We thank you for what this observation, this ordinance is. It is the proclamation of the transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring. Through Jesus, we can be reconciled, have fellowship, have common union with you, and have common union with each other. That we who were once far off can be brought near by the blood of Christ. We thank you that this observation proclaims that saving message. And we thank you for what this ordinance is pointing forward to. There is a day when we will see Christ's face 
And He will, just as He did on this night, serve us. But it won't be in a preparatory meal. It'll be in the marriage supper. Where we will eat and drink with Him. Celebrate our union with Him forever. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the significance of this moment. Father, even anticipating what I'm going to say next, I pray that there would not be one soul that takes this bread, that takes this cup in an unworthy manner. But rather, may they turn to Christ and believe. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.